two, one. Uh, so we're talking here because I paid close attention to a few things you said. Uh, you're interested in Heidegger, you were a TA at Northeastern, and uh, while going through these processes, you became interested in knowledge and what that is and was and what it may be. You were going about this. And... Okay, yeah, that's that. Okay. How would you interview me? <laughs> yes, this last part will be made up of interviews. Hi, I'm Sammy Delotti. This week on the podcast, we'll be talking to four different people about experiences they've had, thoughts they've thought, that relate to education. Chris Wilcox, a painter who's been showing in Europe and the U.S. since 2013, including with No Home Gallery, who runs a seminar called Visual Philosophies, the readings for which, in true democratic fashion, are decided on by the participants. Also Pablo Helguera a New York-based scholar, artist, and educator. Pablo's work covers topics as diverse as sociolinguistics, ethnography, and memory and the absurd. He is the author of 15 books on a variety of subjects, a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, and in 2011 he won the first international award of participatory art of the region Emilia-Romagna in Italy. Monica Mercola, works as a paralegal in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York and is a graduate of the Philosophy Department at Northeastern University, and Dorothy Lam Tsiong, Nohome Gallery's director and former director of educational programming. She also composed the music featured in this week's podcast. I did these interviews right at the beginning of our investigation, but I was worried about putting them in. You know, because contemporary ideas are always the most seductive. Like Rousseau, I wanted to withhold this information until we'd gone through the primary sources, holding hands through Plato, Humboldt, and the Bible. Hopefully by now we've applied enough rigor to the question of education that you'll have some context in which to place what you're about to hear. As my father used to say, Talmudic exposition can only proceed so far, Ira. I mean, Sammy. Sooner or later, real voices are going to need to be heard. Real voices unfiltered, and from the now. First up, Chris Wilcox. Hi, Chris. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, in the closet with me. Victoria Manganiello graciously let us use her closet for the interview. Mm. Cozy. Between 2013 and 2015, Chris attended classes at Bruce High Quality Foundation University, a faux MFA program founded in 2009 that's an offshoot of New York-based art collective Bruce High Quality Foundation. It prides itself on being New York's freest art school and was partially inspired by A.S. Neal's Summerhill School in the U.K. A disclosure. At the time of taping, we thought the school was called Bruce High Quality Free University. The No Home Journal regrets the error. Uh, the first semester I was there at Bruce High Quality Free University, I took the painting critique and a class called Object Relations. Uh, the painting critique was sort of the type of experience you might get in an art school where you have a uh, 
group of students who put their work up on the walls uh, and the rest of the class goes through the student work one by one, uh, talking about the greater and lesser points of it, how it could be improved. The other class was called Object Lessons. And that was a really interesting sort of seminar class that each week we had a different artist who was invited uh, who came and assigned a, a certain reading assignment, which was everything from you know, old medieval texts to the Seinfeld documentary. And sort of the, the underlying thesis of it was the idea that artists are influenced by a variety of works that aren't necessarily artworks. Hmm. This reminds me of a John Dewey quote, and it sort of brings me back to my art school experience. I went to NYU for undergrad, and it was mostly about exposing us to all kinds of things that we hadn't been exposed to before, that we hadn't been exposed to in primary education. On the one hand, it seems like that's coming too late. Shouldn't we be exposed to those things before we reach the age of 18 or something? On the other hand, that might also be counterproductive, what John Dewey would have called object lessons, a nonlinear approach that led to a mere heaping up of isolated objects and qualities without there necessarily being a road out yeah, I'm not sure if the Dewey quote was instrumental in Jarrett's thinking about the class, but I wouldn't and say that it was necessarily the intention was there for to be a, a road out or a, a big summation or something tying together the entire experience, uh, other than the idea that artists look for inspiration in a variety of avenues. Um, I'm not sure there's anything so wrong with a, a heap of different ideas. It's... That's sort of the world we live in. You know, what's incredible and interesting... This is Pablo Helguera. ...is to that, the fact that um, we're so accustomed to this process of indoctrination and this process of uh, being told what to do and what to think, that uh, the, the majority of the time we, we feel satisfied in being told what to do, what, what, what to do. we're being, being directed. You know, this happens a lot in a museum. People show up and like, tell me what to do. You know, where do I go? Who do I listen to? You know, where's the information? And like many people actually get very angry when you uh, don't offer them oh, yeah. those answers. Or, or when you when you basically put them in a situation where they have to confront the fact that there's no answers to many questions. Mm-hmm. That really annoys people a lot, mm-hmm. you know. When I was in primary school, I went to an all-girls Catholic school for three years, and those were my formative years. They really focused on discipline and set out very clear rules for reward and punishment, and so every action you took would have a consequence. And that was clearly reflected in its education, in classes, and your relationship with teachers and your classmates. One anecdote that I remember was that in third grade, my dictation was so terrible that I had a negative score. My teacher took me to the front of the class and told everyone that, don't be like her. And so ever since that, I disciplined myself and my scores got better. That was Dorothy Lam, Zihong. Though adults may in equal measure laud and lament the lack of an organizing principle in education, 
kids exhibit a far less ambiguous response, struggling actively against the fetters that lie heavy upon them, willful to indulge their curiosity in wholly unregulated ways. Little wonder that one of the most popular um, toys for kids, Play-Doh, is homophonic with Plato. Little scientists all, kids ache to take that ladder to the light. I was frustrated because I felt like I wanted to do more but was never necessarily allowed to. This is Monica Mercola. Um, there were instances where I had asked, you know, could I do this type of classwork or coursework uh, rather than what we were doing currently? And I was told no. And that was silly. Mm. <laughs> this was partially due to my own fault in middle school. There was a, I ended up taking um, algebra, like pre-algebra or algebra, I can't remember which, twice because I really didn't like the teacher in the higher class and I didn't want to go up. And then there was, there was a whole thing. It was really not very smart of me. Um, and so because of that, I was technically a year behind in math. So when I got to the public school, they said I couldn't take algebra two and chemistry at the same time because that would be too difficult. And I said, why? That doesn't make any sense. And they said, no, it's too difficult. You don't do it. So I, did, I followed their advice. I ended up being a year behind in math. I guess it's too bad that teachers so often can be limiters. I think that an issue with public education is it doesn't do well with the outliers right. on either end of the bell curve. Yes, this is true. Rousseau would say that you should not teach kids certain things until the faculty of reason develops somewhere between the ages of 12 and 15. Before that, you're spoiling the kid. Not spoiling like buying them too many things, but right, giving right, them something right. to chew on that they aren't prepared to chew on. Huh. Kids are very strange. There's actually, if you want to segue to Heidegger, they're, they're very existential. The individuals themselves, if we're getting into true Heideggerian language, oftentimes will zigzag across the room. And so I don't know if you have any nieces or nephews or, or younger siblings, but uh, my brother is about seven years younger than I am. And so growing up, you can watch as they never walk across the room in a straight line. It's never something mm. a kid mm. does. You're always like, oh my God, look at that shiny thing. Oh my God, what is a flower? Oh my God. Right? So they, they're very interested like that and need to inspect whatever is mm. happening. Mm. And that's really wonderful and exciting mm. and beautiful. Love childhood, said Henry Darger, its characteristics as a distinct and important part of life. It's fitting that we should arrive at the discussion of kids now, since many eminent philosophers and scientists who are concerned with the question of education, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Jean Piaget, Marie Montessori, Eric Erickson, Rudolf Steiner, devote a great deal of their time and attention to the study of children, those inchoate beings, scions of Pan and Diana. Rousseau, in particular, was a proponent of natural education, whereby a child, guided imperceptibly by tutor, makes his or her own way through the world, discovering the usefulness of geometry, physics, ethics, and all the other studies, along with good sense and virtue, on his or her own. If the kid, to Rousseau, the child in question was the fictional Emile, were to desire to move a stone, the child would discover the science of the lever, 
If the kid were to wonder about animals, keeping one would be the next order of business. If the kid were to desire shelter, then he or she would have to learn the rules of carpentry. And so on and so forth. I can, I can speak more about um, Reggio, Emilia, <clears throat> which I visited. Um, yeah. When yeah. I did a project in Italy five years ago or so, I, I was in Bologna uh, and, uh, and I visited this tiny town in the Emilia-Romagna region of, of northern Italy called um, Reggio Emilia, which is a place where after World War II, that was completely, this is a place that was completely destroyed by the war. A group of families came together and built a school to build the new citizens of the world, you know, where the idea of war will not ever come back to haunt society, you know. Uh, after a war, after different wars, um, there's usually an obsession with childhood, the idea of, of new beginnings. And uh, Reggio, the Reggio system is a, um, has been incredibly important for the 20th century and 21st century education because it, it, it um, puts a great emphasis on the independence of the child, on the individual as, as, uh, as someone who has rights. And uh, even if you are four years old, you know, you're, you're still an individual with rights, you know. And you are also and must be treated like a citizen, global citizen, uh, with uh, what uh, the founder of this system said, you know, a hundred languages. You know? We all have a hundred languages for learning, you know. Uh, and uh, what Reggio Emilia does is basically kind of create a small version of a city in the classroom, you know, or in the school, where the kids have agency as to what they want to learn. And it's the burden is on the educators to uh, respond to those interests to build a curriculum. So, in other words, what's happening is instead of the old-fashioned uh, system of like this is the structure and you're going to have to go through it and you have to pass all the exams and you're going to be told what to think and what to say. Um, the process is of basically opening everything to the child and see what captures their interest. So the educators um, of, the, of the school, they see what the kids are interested in doing. So for example, they have a cat and the kids are really into the cat. So they decide to build an entire curriculum around the cat. So they talk about the animal kingdom, you know? Or the kids like, like the plants, so they go and they plant a garden and they learn about, you know, uh, the natural world, you know? So it's very much the sense of John Dewey, of pragmatism, uh, learning by doing. In other words, like learning becomes a process of making. This style of teaching has been imitated widely, including in DC's Lowell School and at Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church Day School in Manhattan. Ironically, Presbyterian means rule by elders. I wonder how they navigate that. Rousseau supposed that his method was an excellent way of bringing up a child, one that would preserve the child's natural goodness. Of course, one of the stipulations of Emile's course of study was that he be raised in relative isolation, lest he, unequipped with the requisite mental armor, be confronted too soon by the world in all its sinister glamour and spoiled. Rousseau was bent on resurrecting the early perfection that he believed humans had experienced in the light of their first ages, in what he thought was a relatively solitary existence, punctuated only by conflicts and by couplings, and for the women child-rearing. We now know that the idea of humans as having ever been especially solitary is false, and many scholars, not least among them John Dewey, have roundly dismissed the notion that an education should ever be undergone in isolation, but the idea that kids retain something of the light which animated humanity's first flowering, and which often dims in later life, still seems, in some ways, true. 
and you know I have a daughter so like I and I I think about this a lot you know like kind of, the conversations with children can be some of the toughest conversations you know uh, when, when a child asks you you know like so what is death you know who's God but these are like very uh-huh. direct uh-huh. and simple questions that are impossibly difficult right. to answer uh-huh. or impossible to answer you know and yet you have to conf- to explain like when my daughter asked me the other day so what does it mean to hate you know huh. I mean it's it, these are really powerful questions you know? we should ask ourselves that too right I mean yeah, a lot of these so, translate right over of course yeah so these are these are the, 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 what's what's beautiful and wonderful about children is that they have no no psychological filters or, or boundaries like they, they can they can ask the most basic things. So you think it's important to question. And this so, is a very Heideggerian yes. notion too. And it's also a very Socratic notion, right? <laughs> it's got a long, <laughs> long pedigree. Uh, yes. Um, but I would uh, definitely say that asking questions is the epitome of knowledge. And I believe it was actually in Heidegger's address in 1933 where he stated to that knowledge itself is not necessarily real and you don't really you have to uncover knowledge by asking questions and only when you ask questions then you can truly learn Uh, you have these lectures that are given and you sort of listen to them with glassy eyes but when you take the initiative to ask questions then you understand Hmm. And have understanding and not knowledge. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say on that. Well, it sounds like being in the world. Yes, it does. Oh, oh, <laughs> exactly. See what I did there? <laughs> so Heidegger. <laughs> Many thanks to Chris Wilcox, Pablo Helguera, Monica Mercola and to Dorothy Lamb, Zihong. This is the final part, part three for education. After this, we're done with podcasts and the No Home Journal is changing formats again. Not sure what it'll be yet, but it won't be a scroll. We'll have some new material in either two months or four. In the meantime, listen to and read the old issues. Reminisce, weep. We'll keep you posted. Yeah, cut.